Hello, Kobo and Conversation listeners. It's Nathan, and I wanted to let you know that we're enjoying a bit of a summer break, and we'll be back with fresh conversations with authors in September. In the meantime, we're releasing a couple of bonus episodes. These were recorded as part of the Toronto International Festival of Authors Crime and Mystery Festival, known as Motive, which happened this past June. First up is Ben Mesrick, who, in addition to writing a lot of thrilling nonfiction, including The Accidental Billionaires and Bringing Down the House, also has a new mystery novel called The Midnight Ride, which is steeped in American history and Bostonian lore. And we've got another episode coming in two weeks that was recorded as part of Motive. We'll let the details remain a mystery for now. Okay, here's my conversation with Ben Mesrick, recorded for the Toronto International Festival of Authors Crime and Mystery Festival. My name is Nathan Maharaj. I am the director of content marketing for uh, Rakuten Kobo. I'm also the producer of the Kobo in Conversation podcast. And I'm just very pleased to be welcoming you all to this very special chat with best-selling author Ben Mesrick as part of as part of Mo- uh, Motive. It's Tifa's Crime and Mystery Festival. Ben Mesrick, I'm going to introduce him because we should, even though he probably needs none. He's the author of many, many many nonfiction thrillers. Uh, he wrote Bringing Down the House, uh, the inside story of six MIT students who took Vegas for millions, as well as The Accidental Billionaires, which you would recognize as the source of the award-winning film, The Social Network. His new book is fiction, but it's no less thrilling. And, and, and it is also rooted in nonfiction. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, it's called The Midnight Ride. It's the story of a pair of small-time crooks. They stumble into a great big secret nestled in the history of the American Revolution. Uh, and look, you'd better read it now because Spielberg's got the rights. So if you can get your hand on a copy, the ebook, the audiobook, get it now because it's coming to a screen near you. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about lots more, um, but let's bring Ben in. Ben Mesrick, welcome to Motive Crime and <laughs> Mystery Festival. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I wonder if we could start out with you reading a little bit about uh, a little bit of the Midnight Ride uh, to bring sure. our audience kind of kind of into the world. I absolutely love to, and I got to take my glasses off for this stuff. Like Clark Kent, I've become Superman now. Um, so beginning from the Midnight Ride, it was a little after two a.m. on a Wednesday, and Haley Gordon was on the run of her life. She gripped the cushion edge of the blackjack table with both hands as she tossed a purposefully nonchalant glance at the cards spread out across the green felt. Christ, it was hard to keep her emotions in check, push down the excitement coursing through her veins. She wanted to leap from her chair, bear hug the nice old man sitting two seats down from her, lift him up in the air and swing him right out of his orthopedic clogs. Instead, Haley painted her face with a bored look, then waved a manicured hand over the table, letting the dealer know she didn't want any more cards. Next, it was the old man's turn, down at third base, the last chair at the table. It had just been Haley and the man for the past hour, because it was so goddamn late in the middle of the week, and because the limits in this particular corner of this particular casino were way too high for its zip code. Haley had no idea how the man could afford a $100 minimum. From his clogs to his resort wear linen suit, the man's look screamed pension. Then again, Haley knew better than most. Looks could be pretty deceiving. She'd been using her looks to deceive for a really long time. And at the moment, she was about to deceive her way into a tidy little fortune. 
The dealer wasn't paying attention, and the pit boss, gnarled, mildly overweight, belly pushing precariously against the buttons of his uniform as he chatted up a cocktail waitress on the other side of the blackjack pit, was otherwise engaged, so Haley let her glance linger a little longer across the table. The brightly colored metropolis of chips spread out across the felt nearest to her was a thing of pure beauty, and judging from the dealer's revealed card, a six, a wonderful, incredible, palpably sexy six, things were about to get even better. Haley had $8,000 behind her four hands, another 6,000 in yellow chips, bananas, already safe next to her drink, a light brown mixture in a scotch glass that smelled like apple juice if you got close enough. Because in truth, it was apple juice. Looks, again, deceiving. I guess I'll stop there. If we could go farther, I don't know. <laughs> I love that. I love that opening scene because uh, because it was I was I was so sent sideways from 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 where we started and where we ended up. But and that's what's hard. That's where I wanted to start was thriller interviews are so tricky because it's all about plot. And I want I don't want to spoil a damn thing. Yeah. But, um, you know, can you can you maybe tell the audience a little bit, take them through the story a bit from Haley at the table to kind of what what is this a story about? Yeah. So basically Haley, Haley is a card counter and, uh, you know, I've written about card counters before in real life. She's someone who uses math to beat the game of blackjack. And she's also got a lot of secrets. She's not who she seems to be. Um, she's an MIT grad student, but not really. I don't want to give too much away. Um, and uh, she's, you know, on the run of her life, making a lot of money, which she really, really needs at a casino just outside Boston. So this is not Vegas. This is Boston, which you'll find out a lot about pretty soon. But um, she uncovers something there uh, when she's on the run from the casino bosses that come after her um, that leads her down a, a rabbit hole um, towards a secret that goes all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Um, and it hinges around the greatest art heist in history, um, the Gardner Museum heist, which is a museum in Boston that was robbed in the middle of the night in 1990 of 13 items, 11 of the most famous paintings in the world that have never been recovered. It's almost a billion dollars worth of art. And there's a $10 million reward out there for anyone who finds them. Um, and I tied in that art heist all the way back to something going back to the Revolutionary War, the American Revolution. Um, so, you know, not to give anything else away, that's the basic plot line. <laughs> We've got some other characters that inter interweave in there, but it's kind of like a, a Da Vinci Code set in Boston um, revolving around, you know, the things that you might see if you went on a, uh, a tour down down the Freedom Trail of Boston, uh, but that go into what what really was going on there. Yeah, I loved it for how for how deeply Bostonian it was. It was like like this is this is not we cannot substitute even they they can't take three steps in any different place. It has to be Boston. <laughs> Everywhere they go is is rooted in it. Um, I didn't know the gar I didn't know anything about the Gardner Museum theft until uh, until I looked it up afterwards and that that sort of riveting scene where you just kind of dramatize it and. Uh, and and it was and at that point I just I just accepted that every everything in the book was true. Um, <laughs> good, so, good. That was my plan. Um, a lot more in this book is true than people realize, um, especially about the Gardner heist. Um, I, I I have some uh, some of my own information <laughs> that that is poured into this book um, that I I got in mysterious ways. So yes, you are deep in the real Gardner heist, and and it's really a spectacular heist if you're into sort of. Um, unsolved crimes. This is one of the weirdest ones um, and spectacular that it's still unsolved considering how famous these paintings are. Mm. Can you tell us a bit, we started with Haley, we've got Haley, we, we know, we, and we know there's, there's a couple of, 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 you know, goons involved in this heist, but 
there's another character in here. This is this is about a pair. This is a this is a dynamic duo story. Um, tell us a little bit about Nick, who shows yeah. up a little bit later. Yeah. So Nick, you know, on the surface is a, a pretty familiar type of Boston character, which is uh, someone who hasn't done well in life. You know, he's just out of prison. He's an ex-con, um, really a burglar. You know, a bank robber um, who's gotten into trouble in his life over and over again, and he's about to do this the score of his life. Um, he has, you know, in prison, gotten a hold of um, something involved with the Gardner heist. Um, he, he's basically attempting to fence these missing paintings. Um, and that's where it starts for him. But he ends up getting caught up in this as well um, when he runs into Haley and the two of them find out that they're on the on the verge of something much, much bigger than just missing paintings. Um, and, uh, you know, he has to make decisions throughout whether you just walk away from what, what was going to maybe change your life um, because it gets too dangerous or whether you keep going even though you may not end up with anything at the end. Um, so he's, 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 he's very much a, a Boston trope in some ways and that he knows, you know, Charlestown. He knows the, all of the kind of seedy areas like the back of his hand. Um, but there's a lot more to him than that as we, as we delve into the story um, because he keeps on going even though he probably should, should turn back. Um, but yeah, that's that's Nick. He's a he's an interesting guy. Yeah. Which which pair? There's such an interesting uh, pair there because they're both they have they seemingly have nothing in common. But as as a card counter, Haley's pretty familiar with you know entering rooms where she's not exactly welcome. We're just trying to you know pull off her thing until she's got to get out of flee the scene. And Nick is a burglar, not not a dissimilar experience of of, of space and other people. How did you conceive of this pair? Was it did they kind of spring to you at the same time as like two two things you wanted to collide, or did you have one and then and then look for the foil? Um, you know, I always I was always intrigued with going back to the card counter. You know, I've I've mm. written about real card counters. I actually spent six months being part of the MIT Blackjack team. Um, if you've seen the movie Twenty One, I mean, we were living that for a while. So that's something that I know very well. So I really wanted the main character to start off, you know, in a casino card counting. Uh, this is actually 20 years uh, to the month from when I wrote Bringing Down the House. So it's kind of fun to go back into that world. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I know going into the Gardner theft. Um, so I, I knew that there had to be someone who's trying to get rid of these paintings because people have been attempting to get rid of these paintings, I believe, for a very long time. Um, so that was kind of the center, you know, of, of where Nick came from. Um, but yeah, I, the thing about card counters that I think is really intriguing is they're not committing crimes. You know, it's nothing illegal about using your brain in a casino and doing math, but the casino treats you like you are committing a crime. Um, so she's always on the run, even though she hasn't really done anything illegal. Mm -hmm. uh, and in her mind, there's a very big difference between what she does, which is, you know, beating a casino out of its money and what Nick does, which is robbing a casino, basically, or whatever <laughs> he's robbing. Um, yeah. And she and but to him, they're two sides of the same coin. It's not that big a distinction. Um, but I think also what's intriguing about her is she's a puzzle solver. She's someone who's really, um, you know, into putting together the pieces. So um, that's that was cool to sort of figure out. There's a lot of puzzles throughout the book um, yeah. that, you know, you, you get. To. Yeah, <laughs> you you just you just a moment ago described this as a uh, as, as kind of the Da Vinci Code, but situated in American history. But there's a critical distinction because in the Da Vinci Code, Robert Langdon is a scholar and the hero. And we've got a scholar along for this ride, and, yeah. and he's a curious character because it's it's hard to tell uh, what we're supposed to feel about him. Um, yeah, Adrian is is really one of my favorite people that I've ever <laughs> written about. He is, um, you know, 
a professor who really is disdainful of just about everyone. Um, he doesn't, <laughs> doesn't like anyone. He thinks he's smarter and better than everyone. He's kind of a peacock who wears bicycling clothes all the time. He's, he's uh, very into how he looks. Uh, um, and, uh, and he solves puzzles, but he, he doesn't want to be a part of this. He's very reluctant. Um, and uh, throughout the book, I got to play with him a lot. And he's actually loosely based on a real person who I will not identify because that person will get very upset. And um, if that person sees himself in this, um, I, I can't imagine they won't recognize themselves. But I think we've all known people like Adrian in our lives who are just so over the top. Um, but, you know, it's very professorial. But he's uh, he's um, he ends up with them solving this, um, but not because he wants to, um, but he's an expert in, in revolutionary history and Paul Revere and, and pretty much all of that stuff. And, and to write this book, I had to become somewhat of an expert in the history of, of this stuff. So, um, so it was cool, you know, putting it all into his, his world. The, uh, I, well, I, I, you're probably safe because someone who's, who's like Adrian is unlikely to pick up a thriller and read something for fun. Right? <laughs> yeah, so, no, not for fun. You're he probably safe. Read it for fun. Yes, yeah, that's yeah, for sure. Because there's yeah. nothing fun. In his world. <laughs> he doesn't believe in frivolity. Paul Revere casts a shadow over this, as the title suggests, as you, as you allude to that midnight ride. Um, and, and as I said before, I now believe everything in the book. It's all true. Yes. Um, so it turns out he's a skilled metallurgist. Um, what, where, where, how did you come to learn so much about Revere? Was that, was that, is that part of like what the, is that part of what this 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 story sprung out of? Was, was well, you know, it's interesting how this story came to life. Um, yeah. So this actually originated. It was in the midst of the worst part of the pandemic last January, um, and I got a call from the Boston Globe, um, you know, my hometown paper, mm. and they said that we're sick and tired of putting you know all this negative news in the newspaper every day. We want to give people something else to read. Um, so they asked if I would be willing to do a serialized something, you know, go back to Dickens times do something that would run every day in the paper for three weeks. And so I said, yes, but only if I could write this sort of thriller. And so this actually originated as one chapter a day for, for three weeks. Um, it was a novella, and so much smaller than what, what the book became. Um, but it was I wanted to always go back to stuff that I already had been obsessed with, which is Paul Revere is not who we think he is. Um, Paul Revere we only know from the poem, right? We pretty much know the Midnight Ride because we were taught it in seventh grade. But the reality is it had nothing to do with, it was not at all as we believed. Um, you know, Paul Revere was not the only rider. Paul Revere didn't even finish the ride. He was captured by the British in the middle of the ride. Um, it wasn't even his horse. You know, nothing about <laughs> that ride was as we think it was. And yes, Paul Revere was a metallurgist. He was the number one copper maker in the world at the time. He was a technologist. And he was a spy who ran a spy ring um, and into sort of stuff that we would not expect just knowing the guy rode a horse across, you know, uh, the woods. Um, so that was something I really wanted to get deep into it. And then the second component was the Gardner Museum. And mm -hmm. the reason I was obsessed with that actually also goes back a, a lot longer. In fact, about 15 to 20 years ago, um, I got a call in the middle of the night, a two in the morning phone call um, from a guy who claimed to be one of the people who robbed the Gardner Museum. And this guy uh, had just gotten out of prison for a very similar art heist. And he proceeded to tell me some things on the phone call that hadn't, hadn't yet come out in the press. Stuff involving the crime that made me think this guy wasn't just full of it, that he actually may have been involved. He told me why the crime happened, who had paid for it, um, and that this very wealthy, famous person had passed away before they could deliver the paintings. And that's why the paintings never 
uh, came forward because they couldn't fence them and they couldn't give them the guy who had ordered them. Um, and then he wanted to set up a meeting with me. So this, you know, he said, I want to meet you at two in the morning in an alley in South Boston. He gave me this address and I started to freak out. You know, I had to come alone, all of this kind of stuff that made me very nervous. He was going to break his parole. Um, so basically I tried to move the meeting and the guy got very agitated. He hung up on me and I never heard from him again. And so this was, you know, 15 years ago. So for the past 15 years, I've wondered, did I miss out on breaking the biggest art ice in history because I was chicken to meet this guy in the middle of the night? And so when the Globe called me to do this, uh, I, I wanted to weave together these two things that I've always been obsessed with, which is the Gardner heist and Paul Revere and that sort of history. Uh, that also sounds like a great way to like lure a uh, like you want to you want to take a famous writer hostage. <laughs> I know, you like, know, it's nerve wracking. Right? As a writer, you get these calls sometimes, and you're like, "How far do I go with this?" I mean, do I really, you know, I'm not really a newspaper. I'm not a journalist of that sort. I mean, I want to write books that are fun and entertaining. I don't necessarily want to get myself killed. <laughs> <laughs> Let someone else write history's first draft if it means going to a, an, an alley at two at two a.m. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, is is uh, how much of 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 that um, deep Boston history, that stuff that's everywhere? How much of that was just is that is that just something that's like is is that like with your Paul Revere yeah. obsession? Is it just generally? Are you just like a deeply steeped Boston guy who like uh, if, we, if we were to go for a walk with Ben Mesrick in, in Boston? <laughs> Would every corner be a, hey, you know? You know, George Washington's left here. Yeah. And it's funny. Boston is one of those cities where everywhere you look, there is a little plaque <laughs> that somebody famous was there or somebody yeah. famous died there. Um, I've been in Boston a long time. You know, I've been there, gosh, I, I, since the 90s, basically. Um, and so I do know the city very, very well. And most of my successful books have a Boston basis, be it, you know, The Social Network, mm. 21, um, a lot of the books that I've written. So, yes, Boston has always been a part of my career and my writing. Um, in terms of Revolutionary War history, I'm a little newer to that. Um, but when I researched this project and I researched it kind of in a frenzy because I was giving a chapter a day to the Globe and it was literally running two hours later, um, I, I was basically uh, uh, reaching out to people like the Paul Revere House, the USS Constitution Museum. I have lots and lots of sources who were teaching me stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I do know the city very well, um, more the modern city than the old city. But, you know, anyone who's who lives in Boston, you know, when you have visitors, you have to go down the Freedom Trail, you got to go to the Bunker Hill Monument, you got to go to the, you know, the Boston Tea Party Museum, and especially if you have little kids. Um, it, it's such a great city in that respect. Um, mm -hmm. It's like there's something on every corner that is really cool to see, um, especially if you're into cannons and, and muskets and stuff like that. Um, so yes, I do know the city pretty well, and I know the history pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, but I discovered a lot of things myself while doing this. You know, when I looked into the for instance, the Bunker Hill Monument is the strangest um, monument in the world. It, it makes no sense at all. Um, the battle was not an important battle. We <laughs> lost the battle. Um, it wasn't even on Bunker Hill. <laughs> and the Bunker Hill Monument isn't on Bunker Hill. And uh, the, mo the monument was built to somebody who was a nobody who died on that land. Um, and nobody knows who he is. But we, we know who he is. But nobody you know, in the world actually has ever heard of this guy. And the monument itself is this insane mason, you know, the masons build it, the Freemasons. And as, as you know, it looks like the Washington Monument. It's the strangest thing. So <laughs> there's a lot to it. Um, and as you dig deeper into it, you realize that a lot of it doesn't make sense. Um, and, and there's a lot of things like that. Um, I could go on and on. The Boston <laughs> Tea Party also isn't as we thought it was. You know, we all we all remember the Boston Tea Party 
being a, a, a sort of a, a protest against taxes, but that's not at all what it was. It was actually a lowering of a tax, not a raising of a tax. Right, they were mad because uh, smuggling got harder, wasn't right. it? Right, the smugglers <laughs> were the ones getting hurt. Um, and the smugglers were the ones using Paul Revere's spies who created the whole thing. So it is funny when you go into sort of this deep history and realize how little we actually know about what went on. Was there was there stuff you had to invent, or I was I'm I'm particularly curious about the cryptography stuff. Yeah, um, which is uh, I mean, as as you spell it out in the book, everyone thinks of like World War II as this as this 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 flourishing of cryptography. Right. Um, but as you kind of sketch it out in the book, it seems like World War II is more like a rediscovery of some some principles we already had and building. Yeah, on the I mean, it was of... huge during the Revolutionary War. Jefferson yeah. was was very famous for creating these you know, basically Jeffersonian ciphers and he used these devices to hide stuff in it. And and Washington used to write letters in, in absolutely um, encrypted ways that were then, he had his own, he had scientists who would decrypt things. It was a really big deal back then um, because everything was written down. You know, there weren't, there wasn't the internet. There was no other way of communicating. So you had to hide messages in plain sight. Mm. Um, so they were very big into that. Um, and And so, yes, I did, delve pretty deeply into that. And I invented a lot in terms of all the connections and things like that. Um, but it turns out the deeper you look into the real world, the more mysteries you discover. <laughs> We're very good at creating these things as you, you know, you can go on the internet every day and find a million <laughs> bizarre, uh, 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 you know, things going on. And so I, I had a lot of fun with that. Um, but yes, as you go through the book, you'll see um, a lot of it's real and a lot of it isn't. And I don't really go into what is and what isn't real. Um, but you know, it all connects together in, in a very real, real way. I think mm. I wanted to ask you more about this, uh, the, the genesis of this project. Cause I think we've all, it, it, those of us who kept kind of some kind of records of our early pandemic days can, can yeah. probably see a kind of ambition about some projects that, that, that is hard to recognize of like, like the timeline of this, this just blows me away of how you wrote this for the globe. As you just said, uh, it wasn't, you weren't, you weren't unleashing a thing that you know. You, you weren't emptying a tank full of of story into the world. You were you were carrying as much fuel as you needed to get the next piece out. And yeah, it was it, a, uh, it was a frenzy. I mean, I will say, <laughs> it sounds like a know, frenzy. They came to me and they were like, "We want you to do this a chapter a day for three weeks." And I was like, uh, "That sounds good. When would we start?" And they said, "Well, we want to start next week." And I was like, "All right, I got to come up with a fully formed thriller in a week. I'll only have a few days head start." Um, and it was in, I, I don't normally write, no, you know, no book writer normally writes like that. I'm not a newspaper writer. And I was, there was doing elaborate artwork each day. And the crazy thing was each day the audience was building. And, and so if you read the book, you'll notice that every chapter kind of ends on a cliffhanger. And that was on purpose because the format had to be, you had to, you didn't want to lose anybody. Cause if you yeah. lose somebody the next day wouldn't make any sense to people. Um, and, and by the end of the first week, we had over 100,000 readers. And by the end of a couple hundred thousand readers, it was one of those things that just was, you know, going and going. It was really interesting because I, I get a, a call out of the blue two weeks later while it's running from my agent in Hollywood. Um, and he's like, are you doing something for the Globe? Because I hadn't told any of my people uh, because I wasn't getting paid. I just did it for free. I was like, you know, I, I love Boston. I'm I'm stuck in this horrible pandemic just like everyone else. And I was, you know, spiraling. I don't know how you felt about everything, but I'm a total hypochondriac. When this whole thing started, I mean, I was one of those people who was basically sleeping with an oxygen monitor on my finger and taking my temperature 14 times a day because I just thought I must be having COVID. Wash the groceries. Yeah, I was insane. And yeah, yeah, and yeah. when the globe came to me, it kind of pulled me out of this hole because I became just obsessed with writing this book. It became kind of the center of my world um, for a few weeks. And so um, I wasn't thinking about it until 
as a book or as anything else, just as this thing I was doing for the globe. And then I get a call from my agent and he's like, you know, I'm getting tons of offers for something that you're doing <laughs> in the globe. And I was like, oh, really? And then Spielberg called and you get that call. And, you know, I've, I've had a lot of success in movies. I've worked with incredible people like Aaron Sorkin and Fincher. But as a child of the 80s, you know, getting a call from Steven Spielberg is just that moment, you know, where you're like, wow, I, yes, <laughs> that sounds great. Um, and that's when the idea came to turn what was in the globe at about 20,000 words into a full-size book. Um, and, and then it all kind of went from there. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was, that's actually, that's, that's amazing. So it was, it was just kind of coming to the end of its thing and you already had, you already had this offer to make it a bigger thing. Yeah. Um, and you yourself still had to make it a bigger thing <laughs> because it yeah. was I mean, there is that, right? a bigger <laughs> thing than you produced so far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically, you know, the whole thing was a cliffhanger after cliffhanger, cliffhanger. And even the ending at the time was a real cliffhanger. Um, and so, you know, I remember my dad was the first person who called me. It was like, you didn't end it yet. <laughs> Where's the ending? And I was like, oh, man, uh, I got to come up with an ending. Um, so when we sold it as a book, I, I sat down with the editor and he was like, you know, we, we need to quadruple this. Um, we need to go into this in a lot more um, ways. Um, and it was actually very tricky. You know, it's actually very hard. I'm not a person who actually rewrites very much. I know there's a lot of writers who are really into rewriting, mm -hmm. but the reality is for me at this point in my career, I, I write a book, I hand it in, and I move on to the next project. Um, I write in a frenzy. I have kind of a crazy process. I write very quickly. Um, so, you know, I write books in 10 weeks, 11 weeks. I hand in the book and, and then I'm done. Uh, and, you know, sometimes the editor comes back with this change or this change, but they're minor. This was very different in that I actually had to write most of the book after I'd already written the book. Um, and so I got to go deeper into the characters. I got to go add uh, more monuments and more civil, uh, I mean, Revolutionary War battles. I got to really interlace things that I was not able to do because the format for the globe was so short. Um, and then I was also thinking movies. So I actually wrote mm. the draft of the screenplay as well. Um, and so I got to work with people at Amblin and Spielberg's people to incorporate some things into the book that I think will make great movie scenes. Um, so it was a fun process. It was really a blast, um, but it was not easy. Um, it wasn't something that I thought would be, I thought it would be easier to do, but it was actually quite tricky. Right. I mean, you, you, would, you had written a, th a thriller that was, that was tight. It was, it was crackling. Very, very compact thriller. Um, right. You know, the original thing. Um, but yeah. And then, and then to sort of add um, without, without changing the chapter size. So I really wanted to keep these short cliffhanger chapters, because I love that style. Mm -hmm. um, I love Michael Crichton. I go back to Crichton all the time. And what he was able to do with, with scarce language and very short chapters, I think is spectacular. Um, so that was that was something that I consciously was attempting to do here. Right, so you, you had to go back to it and pry pieces open and, yeah. and inject kind of, kind of, not even, it's not even connective tissue. You had to inject like, you know, bone and muscle in, in yeah. the, into places where there was, where there was no limb. Um, uh, that's a, a, you know, some of us made sourdough, but, <laughs> um, you've, you've written thrillers before. Um, this is, this is striking a lot. I think it strikes a lot of readers as, as, as a, as a major departure, but way early on, um, you, you penned a few thrillers. Can you talk a little bit about sort of that arc? Does, does it feel like coming back or are you, yeah. you're, you're not even the same writer? Yes. Well, so, you know, I've wanted to be a writer since I was 12 years old. I was a little kid. Uh, I was obsessed with TV and my parents, fearing the worst, made a rule in our house that we had to read two books a week before we were allowed to watch TV. So by the age of 12, I had been <laughs> reading and reading and reading just so I could watch 
Three's company, but <laughs> but I became you know a, a very big reader and then wanted to be a writer. So when I graduated from college, um, I, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And originally I was writing like Brady Snellis and Jay McInerney, these dark stories that take place in bars. And mm -hmm. I got rejected by everyone in publishing. I got 190 rejection slips, had them taped to the walls like a serial killer. Um, and then I met an editor in publishing, a guy named John Carp, who's gone on to become a very powerful editor. Um, and he said, I'm not going to publish any of the crap you've written, um, but go read John Grisham and Michael Crichton and Robert Ludlum and then come back. And so my introduction, you know, were all of these great thriller writers. And I decided that's what I wanted to be. I want to be Michael Crichton. Um, and so my first book that I sold, um, which nobody read, was a techno thriller, like a Crichton-esque book called Threshold, um, which led to another book called Reaper, which was a TV movie called Fatal Error that starred Antonio Sabato Jr. and Robert Wagner. And you should never watch it if it airs on the Sci-Fi Channel. It's horrible. Um, which led to me working for the X-Files for a little while, if you remember that TV show, and I wrote a book for them. Um, so I did have a series of like techno-medical thrillers back in the 90s when I was in my 20s. Um, that nobody read. <laughs> and uh, and it wasn't until I ran into this group of MIT kids at a bar um, and just started going to Vegas with them every weekend um, that I became a nonfiction writer. So I never mm -hmm. intended to be a, a nonfiction writer at all. Mm -hmm. It's just that book. I then wrote that book, which became Bring It Down the House, which just exploded. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and it you know, was just a massive bestseller. So that's what publishers wanted from me. So I became a nonfiction writer by accident. And then I fell into the social network, which was another nonfiction story. So I wrote nonfiction book after nonfiction book, but I've always wanted to be Michael Crichton and it never kind of went away. Um, and then of course I read the Da Vinci Code and I was like, oh, now here's another way of going into that. Um, and, and so, yes, I've always wanted to write The Midnight Ride. Um, it's just something that I tried when I first started out in my career to go, uh, but in a, in a smaller scale, I think. Um, and now after I've done all of these nonfiction books, I'm hoping, you know, to do this, um, you know, more. I, I really enjoyed doing it. So, yes, I, I have written, you know, fiction in the past, um, but, but you know, my nonfiction is what I've been known for. Yeah, yeah. Did, that's, <clears throat> it's a remarkable thing to, to, have, to have made that decision also to, to write Bring Down the House and not to fictionalize it. To, to, to yes. play it straight. How did you reconceive? Because you'd already gone through one transformation. You thought you were thinking, I'm, I'm the second coming of Brett Easton Ellis. Right. And then you were like, actually, no, let's, let's aim for, let's aim for Crichton. Crichton's right. like those, maybe it's that kind of a writer. Well, what, what's great was I also discovered Hunter S. Thompson. And so mm. when I sat down to write Bringing Down the House, I had no training in journalism. And I think that freed me up to write the book how I wanted to write it, which is to write it like a movie. Um, I wrote Bringing Down the House in a frenzy. I was in Vegas. I stayed in a different hotel room every night. I wrote the book in 11, uh, nine weeks, eight or nine weeks. Um, and it, it, you know, it wasn't expected to be a big book. It was a, a crazy kind of book um, about these MIT kids who made a fortune in Vegas. And it was all true. But I wrote it like it was a movie. Um, and so when it came out, it was actually somewhat controversial. Um, a lot of reviewers of The New York Times were like, well, what, what exactly are you doing here? <laughs> Is this true? Is it not true? And it is true. It's a nonfiction book. But I wrote it in a dramatic way. Um, mm. And so that became sort of my style, this kind of gonzo um, nonfiction. You know, it's Hunter S. Thompson without the drugs and the guns and, the <laughs> and killing your assistant or whatever. Um, I was I was I, I always wanted to be a blend of Crichton and, and Hunter S. Mm. Thompson with my nonfiction. So I just don't I don't follow a lot of rules. You know, I, I, I write them like thrillers. And um, and then you get to the social network, which I think is kind of a, a, a really 
interesting way to tell a story about a couple of kids who started a website, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, the key was to how do you make that dramatic? How do you make that into something that could be a major movie? Um, and that's how I've always approached my nonfiction stories. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, for me, I write my nonfiction like it's fiction and I write my fiction like it's nonfiction. I feel like <laughs> the best nonfiction out there is the ones where you read it and you're like, was this, did this really happen? Um, and, and so that's how I've always approached it. And listen, there are reviewers who don't love the way I do it, um, but I think it's, it's sort of inspired a, a lot of people to do something like it. And so since Bringing Down the House, there's been a lot of books that have been written that way and it's much less controversial now. Yeah. When you're, when you're writing, um, and I, I entered when I introduced you, I, I called them nonfiction thrillers. You, you call them thrillers too. Um, in in that that run of success where where you're writing these nonfiction thrillers, was there was there a point, uh, uh, not you know not spurred by a pandemic and a and a random yeah. offer from the local newspaper, uh, which happens to be the Boston Globe? Something else, another point where you thought maybe it's time to jump into fiction. Um, well, I did write a book called Seven Wonders a number of years ago, mm. um, which actually is being made into a TV series by NBC now, um, which was about the seven wonders of the world and a connection between them. It was more like Indiana Jones. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, I've always thought about it. You know, the reality of the publishing world is when you've had a lot of success in one form of writing, that is more what of that, please. Yeah. Want. That's what your audience <laughs> wants. That's what your publishers want. That's what the movie studios want. Um, but it's always kind of been in my mind. I write for the show Billions on Showtime. Um, I was a producer writer last season for them. Um, so I do get to sort of stretch my wings into sort of the fictional world a little bit here and there. Um, but, you know, The Midnight Ride was my first real, you know, major work in, in, this, in this format um, and hoping to become something that I, I'm doing the sequel now um, for next year. And my goal is to do one of these every year if, if people read it, you know, if it does well. And if the movie gets made, that would be my goal going forward. So, yeah, I love it. Um, you know, yeah, over the years, I've always kind of thought about it. I've always played with it in my head. When can I just write a big fiction book? Um, but the realities are, you know, you, the social network comes out and you want to do another one. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that's so who it, you are for a while. I yeah. mean, yeah, you get known for a certain type of writing and it's, it's, it's difficult to shift back and forth. Um, but, um, but we'll see what happens. I, I really enjoy doing it. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm glad you mentioned a sequel. Um, uh, it's no no spoiler to say when we get to the end, it doesn't feel like the end end. It feels like an end. Um, there's certainly there's certainly more to come. How <laughs> I feel I feel crazy asking you this because we've just talked about um, what a what a manic thing it was to even pr get it get the novella produced then turn the novella into the novel. How, how many how many volumes ahead do you have a view to <laughs> plot-wise? Yeah, I have a bunch. So in the first book, we don't really get a good look at, at, at who the bad guys are, like mm. what's going on behind the scenes. There's a family. Um, and this is actually informed, goes all the way back to that first phone call I got in the middle of the night uh, about who actually, I believe, who actually paid for the Gardner heist. Um, in the opening of Midnight Ride, there's a scene where the robbery takes place. And I believe that's pretty much how the robbery happened based on what this guy told me. Um, and so in the next book, you get more and more into who, why, what's really going on on the other side. Um, I've got a blueprint in my head of a number of them, at least three or four different you know, places where we're gonna go with this story. Um, I'm writing the second book now, which is due in May you know, at some point. So I'm, I'm really kind of deep into that project right now. Um, but yeah, I foresee this going on for a few books at least. Um, and we'll see. We'll see how it, how the audience, you know, receives it. 
as it's just come out and how it keeps going. But I would love to keep doing it for sure. I assume the second volume is a little easier going as a as a writing process. You would think. You would think. <laughs> yeah. the, the reality is, <laughs> nothing in this world is easy, right? Writing is just not. It's not an easy endeavor ever. It's a. It's a. It's a digging a ditch that needs to be dug over and over again. Um, I love. I love. You know, coming up with the stories and the research and all of that stuff. Um, so yes, it's it's definitely. Um, I know the characters really well at this point, um, mm. but getting you know all the puzzles correct is always very tricky. Right, and the nonfiction projects still is there is there anything on the back burner or yeah? So I just, just had a yeah. book out called The Antisocial Network. I think yep. I got a copy of it back there, there somewhere, yep. um, which uh, was about the GameStop drama, which yeah. is you know a really crazy story. We're actually shooting that movie this summer, um, and we uh, is it's being done by the people who did the Social Network, which is um, Mike DeLuca at MGM, which is now owned by Amazon. Um, and uh, Aaron Ryder, who produced Arrival and Memento, is producing. It's going to be awesome. We're actually going to start casting very, very soon, which is really cool. Uh, I wrote a book called Bitcoin Billionaires. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's back there, but it's being made into a movie this summer as well about the Winklevi twins and their rise in Bitcoin. You know, you never thought you'd see those guys again, <laughs> and they are they are back. Um, I have a book called Wooly. I wrote a couple of years ago, which we're actually shooting as a movie as well over the next couple of years about the woolly mammoth coming back to life, which is mm. a true story. Um, and then um, and the Seven Wonders is being made into a television show. So I do have a lot of projects um, in terms of what my next big nonfiction book is. I don't know the answer to that yet. Um, I've been I've been digging into a number of stories that may become the next thing, but I, I don't have have it yet. OK, well, well, we'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll sit tight then. So go check out all of Ben Mesrick's books on Kobo. There's a link to help with that in the show notes. This podcast episode containing audio from the Toronto International Festival of Authors was produced by me, Nathan Maharaj. And I'll be back in this feed soon with more from Motive, the crime and mystery festival. Thanks for listening. <laughs>